Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. John is busy getting ready for a big trial, so I am flying solo this morning, although I know he wishes he could be here with us very dearly. So we have been captivated, at least everybody in our office, and I know that much of the public has been observing with great curiosity the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, and once again we're going to I should say I'm going to uh, go through some of the major events that have occurred since our uh, last show. And uh, a lot of people have uh, called me and asked me questions about what's going on with all these uh, mistrial motions that are being made. And I want to explain that because um, a lot of times people believe that if a case results in a mistrial, that it simply goes away. And that's not true. Um, generally, when there is a motion for a mistrial, it's because something has happened that can't be undone. Uh, The old saying is that you can't unring a bell, so that once the jury has heard something or something has happened that uh, taints the trial in such a way that uh, it has rendered it uh, impossible to go forward because of how the jury has seen or heard something that uh, prejudices one side or the other and and cannot be changed. Usually, this happens as a result of the prosecution asking questions that are already deemed out of bounds by the judge or something that is purely inadmissible and highly prejudicial. Um, I've, I've gone into great depth in past episodes on this show about the whole concept of the judge being a gatekeeper for uh, appropriate evidence. And there is controversy, of course, always has been controversy surrounding that concept because there are those that would say that the jury should hear everything and if they have any difficulty um, sorting things out, well, that's part of their job. And if jurors are smart, which we believe they are, then they should be able to give things its appropriate weight. And if something seems like it's a bunch of nonsense, well, that's up to them. The other view on that is that The concept of relevance is supposed to keep the trial focused on the elements of the offense and nothing else. And if we invite people to speculate uh, far afield from the actual issues in the case, then we don't have as reliable of a result. And that kind of makes sense if you think about it. But um, there were some very specific issues that were raised pre-trial and were also raised again at various points in the case. And the prosecutor, Thomas Binger, um, at one point, and if you watched uh, TV on all of this, then you saw that Judge Schrader was uh, very upset with the prosecutor because there had been a very clear ruling on how certain evidence would be used or couldn't be used. And then Mr. Binger had a theory in his head that it had suddenly become relevant and wanted to get into that line of questioning. Now, there's two schools of thought on this. First is that uh, if the proponent of the evidence that's already been ruled inadmissible believes that it has become relevant because of something else that's happened in the trial, it's certainly proper to re-raise that issue, raise it again, and ask the judge if things have changed. And that's one thing that uh, Binger didn't do. 
he started getting into this line of questioning that the judge had already said was off limits. And with any ruling, um, you know, that can change, but it's up to the parties to say, hey, judge, now I think that things have um, presented a different situation, and now I'd like you to reconsider the previous motion that was made, and now I'd like to get into that line of inquiry because of something that was said. Um, Bigger didn't do that. He just uh, took it upon himself to get into an area that was already deemed off limits on the theory that something had happened, and basically it was other questions that uh, Rittenhouse had answered that he then believed or had a theory that it should be coming in at this point. I can add to this that I think one of the dynamics that made things uh, more tense than uh, typical trials go is that, first of all, there's objections all over the place, and more frequently than what we normally see, the judge was having hearings outside the presence of the jury, like all the time. So an issue would come up, the judge would send the jury out, they'd talk about it, they'd bring the jury back in, they talk about then the, the, the questioning progresses. And then another issue comes up, they send the jury. It's like musical chairs. They're up and down and up and down. And I, I think that at some point, one hesitates to keep doing that over and over again. Well, that's not a very good excuse, in my opinion. I think that uh, Binger either had some sort of, personally, I think that he had scripted out many questions that he had difficulty keeping track of uh, what was <laughs> what was previously ruled on and what wasn't. And that's a very common prosecutor phenomenon is that uh, having been a prosecutor myself, although it was very early in my career, I was a brand new lawyer, I can tell you that um, it is a process whereby one tries to be as mechanical and as, I guess, surgical as possible in the process of asking questions because your job is to make sure you've hit all the points because if you miss something like jurisdiction or identification of the accused or any of the elements of the offense uh, by bringing evidence in, then, you know, you just plain lose. So it's pretty common for a prosecutor to, to script things in such a way so that they've hit all the high points. One thing that prosecutors um, are, are terribly not good at preparing for is the cross-examination of a defendant when they take the stand. And I know that feeling because I've done it before. And uh, you can prepare everything else, all the witnesses that you've subpoenaed and all the records that your law enforcement agencies that work for basically with the DA's office have produced all this information. And all you really have to do is organize it in such a way and present it in an orderly fashion. The one thing you don't know at all is what the defendant's going to say. So it's something that you can't really prepare for in the same way. Well, you know, I'll tell you, that's kind of like how it goes for the entire defense case. And of course, defense lawyers are very used to um, having a witness that isn't necessarily cooperating with you. That's a lot of the state's witnesses, and you have to end up uh, attempting to control the witness in such a way that they will answer your questions and they will uh, testify truthfully. And you, you work in how you address bias and all these other things into that philosophy. But it's, a, it's an uncommon and I think an anxiety-provoking circumstance for prosecutors to have to deal with that. But there's another theory, 
and uh, we touched on this on a previous show, but it's entirely possible that uh, Attorney Binger was deliberately going down the path of asking questions that he knew would prompt a mistrial motion. In fact, that's exactly what uh, the defense claimed at that point in the trial, that this was crystal clear, that the judge had made a ruling, and that by violating that rule on purpose, the prosecution was trying to trigger a motion from the defense for a mistrial. Now, a mistrial, as we started off uh, at the top of the hour talking about, is something that means you go back and start again, unless, unless the judge grants the motion for mistrial with prejudice. And what that means is that prejudice attaches and the prosecution then cannot bring the case again. It's over. Done. Finite. Kaput. <laughs> and that is really uh, reserved as a punishment for prosecutorial misconduct. And that's exactly the argument that was being made by the prosecution, I mean, the defense, Mark Richards and Corey Shirafasi, in the process of presenting this issue. Um, so the interesting thing about that is that's a very, very rare occasion where something like that would come into play. I've had it happen maybe three or four times in my career where there was an argument that could be made that the prosecutor was losing the case and then wanted to have another bite at the apple and try again. And I'll just remind you, if you paid attention to how things were going in the trial, virtually every witness that the state called, at least the eyewitnesses, saying, were saying things that it appeared were a surprise to the prosecutor and he ended up struggling with um the way that things were worded you know whether or not rittenhouse uh was dealing with someone lunging at him or falling towards him and it appeared that binger was not expecting a lot of those answers so you know does that possibly play into the idea that a motion for mistrial should be with prejudice because it's logical that binger would have thought he was losing the trial well, we'll talk more about that when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back. We were just talking about when a prosecutor may trigger or deliberately, I guess, provoke a mistrial and in the attempt to scuttle a trial that isn't going very well. And yes, that happens. Um, as I said, it's very rare. And part of it is that the defense has a burden of proving in that scenario that the prosecutor prosecutor acted in bad faith and was trying to do that. No prosecutor would ever admit that, right? Oh, no, judge, I wasn't trying to do that at all. Um, so we, much later in the trial, in fact, I believe it was when, while the jury was deliberating, which is not a great time for an issue like this to come up because once they start that deliberation process, uh, you know, there cannot be or at least there should not be, uh, any reopening of the evidence or reintroduction of evidence or anything like that. I mean, it happens all the time where the jury will begin deliberations, they'll come back with some kind of question, and if it relates to something that isn't in evidence, the only answer that the judge can give is, uh, you will not 
have access to that information, or the judge will say that isn't relevant to the case, or it's not an evidence, so you cannot consider that aspect. Well, what happened here is that while the jury was deliberating, it, it dawned on uh, the defense that when the prosecution was going through this this one particular video, and it was the, the FBI drone video, that apparently had been according to the prosecutor, received, you know, very close to the time that the trial started. And, of course, there's an obligation for the prosecution to share everything they have with the defense. It's in the statutes. Section 973 of the statutes uh, mandates what the prosecutor must do. And this is part of one's due process rights and their right to confrontation of evidence against them. So it's built into our statutory scheme that the prosecutor is required basically to turn over anything they intend to use with some limited exceptions. Um, the exceptions primarily relate to rebuttal evidence, but even then it's, uh, it's risky for a prosecutor to consider something to be rebuttal and not subject to the discovery rules. That being said, this was something that obviously became a very key component to the prosecution's presentation of evidence. Well, it was discovered that the version uh, that had been provided to the defense did not have the same resolution as the uh, quote-unquote original, you know, high-definition file. Then there was some discussion about, you know, whether or not that was due to the defense um, not having appropriate software um, to be able to view it correctly in the right type of resolution. And I've, I've had some experience with this particular issue and sometimes, um, and, and here's what I think happened. Uh, I get by way of discovery things sent to me all the time and they're in some electronic format. Many counties now use these uh, electronic storage vaults you know, V-A-U-L-T-S, vaults, um, to provide information to the defense. So it's kind of like a server that you log into and you download and so on. Some of the very um, high-tech uh, recordings out there need to be viewed with a particular type of software in order for it to be in its correct, quote-unquote, environment. And I'll give you an example. Um, you know, certain... Uh, law enforcement agencies use squad court, a squad car footage that there will be, you know, the raw image data that's there, but you also have to have a program that runs it in order for other data that's part of that to be displayed properly. For example, there is, um, there are a few agencies that use this program that will show not only what the squad car camera is recording, but also the, uh, uh, global positioning data as to where the car is. Are the sirens on? Are the lights on? What's the speed of the car? Etc. And you could have multiple camera angles uh, viewing the back seat of the squad car as well as the front view and, and so on. And different microphones that are live. You can have just the officer's body microphone on or you can have the interior of the squad car activated and you can toggle these things. Okay, It's designed to give the viewer more um, options for what they they could actually view it in different ways with different types of enhancements so to speak but um 
if you just get the recording itself, it's probably viewable in a multiple uh, variety of different um, electronic format viewers. Some of them are very generic. And in fact, I think we saw some of these videos uh, during the Rittenhouse trial being played with just a, a freeware version of a video viewer. And, you know, it's pretty common. You know, that's a, it's a way to make sure that different formats uh, load in correctly. Well, I suspect that this was um, footage that needed to be viewed in some type of proprietary software that, again, the law enforcement agencies contract out with these software companies to manufacture uh, products that are that are exclusive to their their particular law enforcement agency. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, um, they there are ways to make sure that the the footage can't be manipulated or changed or altered. And of course, if a law enforcement agency produces some type of evidence and they turn it over to the prosecutor, there there needs to be a way to make sure that it can't be altered, right? They're giving it to the defense. The def they need to make sure the defense can't like do something to change what's being seen, right? So that's one reason why they have these proprietary software environments that sometimes it needs to be played in. And that's very, very common in the federal system, by the way. So another reason for that is that um, due to the fact that sometimes the resolution of something, and I've seen this in drone cases before where, where the drone uh, video is something that's going on, you know, the actual electronic data, the size of that file is tremendous. I mean, it's a lot of memory. It's a, it's bigger than your average video file. Let's put it that way. So in order to see it with the correct uh, processing of so many frames per second, oftentimes you need to have that software that it, that it's designed to work with. I've seen it happen many times where um, the prosecution will provide what they believe to be the video file. And it is a video file, but it's they don't provide the companion software that you can't go out and buy, by the way. It has to be provided as part of the discovery as well. Because typically that law enforcement agency has you know, exclusively contracted with a software company to you know, make it for them not available to the public, which again goes back to making it so people can't manipulate, change, or alter any kind of video that's out there. So again, I, I don't know the dynamics of this but particularly, but I suspect that this had to do with the fact that when the prosecution provided this video and when the defense viewed it, it didn't appear as clear as the one that was actually played in court. Now, you heard an argument about why this should also be a mistrial, and that had to do with the fact that um, the defense didn't see the actual, you know, high definition recording until it was played to the jury, and when the prosecution was pointing out what they thought was significant, this is stuff that the the overall resolution of what the defense had been provided didn't match up. Well, it wasn't until the jury started deliberating that the defense team realized that this was something that was going on. So then they made a motion for a mistrial. I mean, uh, I would say a weaker <laughs> motion for a mistrial because really, you know, you have to look at where's the harm involved. And 
the explanation was, oh, we might have had a completely different strategy had we seen it more clearly, or I would have asked questions of Mr. Rittenhouse in a different way had I been able to see it more clearly. Well, maybe, but um, that's a situation where a judge has to look and see if it actually did prejudice anybody. And is it a and is it a violation of the rules? Because technically the prosecution did provide it. But again, I can see a scenario here where the defense might not have realized that the recording itself was capable of being viewed in a higher definition format because there may not have been... Again, I'm speculating. I'm just telling you what I've seen in other cases. So... Interestingly, that was a motion that was made without prejudice, and I think the reason that the um, defense had to make that motion for mistrial without prejudice is that it's acknowledged that you know they bear some responsibility for not uh, you know viewing it with the appropriate type of software or making an assumption that what they had was the same as what the state had, which, by the way, is something that anyone can pick up the phone and talk to the prosecutor about. So uh, that's kind of an iffy one. Anyway, we'll talk more when we come back right after these messages. And we're back. Another interesting thing that happened in the Rittenhouse trial was, I'm sure you heard about this, the (laughs) paparazzi, (laughs) if you want to call it that. I'm not really sure what... what you would call it, but I guess it was a freelance reporter for MSNBC was out, I supposedly trying to see what was going on, where the jurors were going. And of course the jurors are being transported in a bus to and from the um, courthouse in Kenosha. And by the way, you know, as the jury started deliberating, there were all these um, protesters around and people, you know, that you can't keep people away from the courthouse, but there's been a pretty tremendous concern throughout this case about protecting the jurors' identities, um, trying to keep them from being exposed to all this other stuff, such as it was in the news that there are 500 National Guardsmen ready for the verdict, and um, it would be virtually impossible for somebody not to be aware of that because the jurors aren't technically, you know, full-on sequestered. And by the way, we, we really don't do that very much anymore, um, at least not during the course of a trial, because I think the whole idea of putting up jurors in a hotel has kind of gone by the wayside. It used to be, years ago, that uh, when a jury was involved in a trial, and if there was any publicity going on on the radio or newspapers or whatever, Uh, there was a theory that you could keep people in a hotel someplace that didn't have television and that people would be prohibited basically from having any contact with the outside world. Um, That was before we had cell phones and, uh, you know, basically you cannot, you can't live in the world without being uh, basically bombarded with, it'd be very difficult to shut yourself off completely from all information. So nowadays, what we tell jurors is don't research anything. If you are listening to the radio and a news item comes on, turn it off. A lot of this is based on good faith. You know, we just trust jurors not to be interested (laughs) in the case that they're involved with, which is asking a lot because there's essentially no no real way of policing that. It, It simply 
you know, and, and I've heard this before, you know, people that said, oh, if I were a juror, you know, I would trust myself to be able to listen to the radio and then just not consider it. But I'm awfully interested because it's interesting, you know, um, human nature. But oftentimes we believe that, you know, those rules are designed to stop other people from being influenced by stuff, but I can keep it separate in my head. Hmm. Well, I, I don't know, but basically all these efforts to uh, protect the jury, which are appropriate, uh, this event happened where, and again, it was a freelance reporter who submits um, articles to MSNBC, so not an employee of MSNBC, was following the bus that was transporting the jurors someplace. And this individual who was following ended up running a red light and getting pulled over by the police. And then somehow it was determined that they were trying to, you know, keep tabs on where this bus was going. Which, when the judge heard about this, Judge Schrader nearly lost his mind over this. And, you know, I just wanted to back up a little bit because, as far as we can tell, there was no actual contact with any jurors. And if someone was simply saying, hmm, there goes the bus, I wonder where they're going. There's really no law against following it legally from a safe distance without any communication with the person. I don't know that there's any legitimate purpose behind that. And certainly it, it looks bad, right? But is there any evidence that there was any actual contact with jurors or that there was any ill intent other than just mere curiosity. And one can ascribe ill intent to all of that, meaning, well, maybe the this freelance reporter wanted to expose where the where the jurors were going, what they were having for lunch, or who they are, take pictures of them, or whatever. But none of that actually happened. Um, it was basically someone who was trying to see where the bus was going. It, it, being a reporter is probably not good. But again, you're allowed to drive and go anywhere you want in the city of Kenosha. If you're, if you say you bus and you're like, oh, those are the jurors. I wonder where they're going. I mean, I know you're really not supposed to do this, but have you ever seen a fire truck going somewhere? And you're like, oh, you know, I'm going to see, <laughs> I'm going to get closer to see what's going on with the fire or whatever. I mean, you're not really breaking any laws, but if you interfere with that fire truck, then yes, you know, then you're in trouble. And we all know that it's just kind of one of those things that you you avoid the appearance of impropriety by staying away. Um, so the judge ended up making a controversial ruling because he banned anyone from MSNBC uh, from being in the courtroom. And uh, true, it, it, it doesn't look good and it doesn't sound good and the potential for there being chaos in the situation is there the judge has every right to make his best efforts to control what's going on but but in our country that being the united states of america our courtrooms are open to the public they always are when we're talking about a criminal trial there are exceptions to that if it's a juvenile hearing where someone is not facing adult conviction we do close those courtrooms because we do wish to protect a juvenile's um, privacy in that in that particular matter. Also, if there are mental health commitment hearings where there's sensitive uh, medical information being shared, 
that can also be closed to the public. But basically everything else, everything that the, the courts do, because the courts are part of the government. The government has to have open doors when it's conducting business. Um, that doesn't mean that if there's, if there's no room in the courtroom, that doesn't mean you have a right to be in there. There are modifications to that that can be made. But um, you can't do anything in court that isn't open to the public. So that transparency is something that is very important. And part of that is you can't exclude, you're not supposed to exclude people in the media unless they're misbehaving or being disruptive or whatever the case may be. And I will tell you that um, this is one of those situations that really doesn't come up very often in any kind of appellate decision because the time to get a remedy for whatever the perceived violation is, and I'm saying from let's say MSNBC, let's say they're aggrieved by the fact that they've been banned from the courtroom. Who are they going to go to and what are they going to do? Well, I suppose they could file some kind of emergency request to overrule the judge's decision with, I don't know, a federal court or a court of appeals or whatever. And then by the time anybody rules on any of this stuff, it it's already too late because they've already been banned and there's already been deliberations going on. And so just the reality of that uh, dynamic makes it so it's unlikely that these things end up uh, being litigated. Now, there could be future litigation, I suppose, based on an infringement of a First Amendment right that the MSNBC may have had. And if it was deemed unreasonable and a restriction, well, yes, people do have a right to you know, if you're a person to be present in court, and if you're a news agency with limitations, of course, be allowed to cover what's going on. Um, you know, the, the rules have changed over the years. It used to be that you couldn't take pictures in any courtroom. I mean, that was the rule for a very long time. It's still the rule in the United States Supreme Court, which is why you see those sketches, you know, and also in most federal courts, you cannot take pictures. That you see those artists' renderings, you know, and uh, that's evolved quite a bit over the years, especially in state courts, where um, it's just easier to ensure that the you know the quote unquote press has the ability to cover something. And part of this comes from the fact that courtrooms are of limited size, and if a judge is excluding people because it's full there has to be some consideration for who else can, you know, in the outside world can observe what's going on in, a, in an open court. So that's been part of the reason why the press is allowed into uh, the courtroom. And sometimes there's a separate press area that may be in a, um, I know several of our courthouses in the state have press rooms that are, it might be behind glass or it might be a, a separate area where equipment is supposed to be set up and hooked into the audiovisual systems. And I know that's exactly what they are. They have been doing there in Kenosha. All right. It's time for yet another word from our commercial sponsors. And we hope that you pay close attention and then you'll join us when we come back. Welcome back to Legal Defense. And I'm your gracious host, Kirk O'Bear. Um, this Rittenhouse trial has been fascinating on so many different levels. And as we've discussed before, this is really like a textbook example of how self-defense works 
in the state of Wisconsin. And there have, I'll warn you, there have been some commentators out there that have gotten it, you know, either slightly wrong or very wrong as it relates to what the law is. And it's very clearly spelled out. One thing that we do have uh, in the law is this concept of jury instructions. And believe it or not, we, we go to those to determine in a most precise manner, the most precise manner that we can muster, uh, what the elements of an offense are, and it also describes how certain affirmative defenses can be applied. So the jury instructions are are not the law, but they're from the law, I guess is what we could say. And remember, the judge's responsibility is to make rulings on the admissibility of evidence, to uh, make sure that the trial is conducted in an orderly manner, to make decisions about other simple things, such as when do we take a break, uh, you know, and, and can basically keep order. Um, that's it, you know, order in the court. And the judge isn't supposed to make any rulings that uh, give one side an, an unfair advantage over the other, bearing in mind that the burden of proof is, is always in the prosecution unless it shifts to the defense. So that's one thing that happened in this case that was interesting because we've really seen every aspect of both the different levels of homicide that can be charged in Wisconsin, as well as how the defense of self-defense works in those scenarios. You may have heard the term imperfect self-defense. Well, sometimes that means that uh, someone did not, may have forfeited their claim for self-defense and so on. And then it can be regained and it's almost like moving chess pieces around a chessboard. It can get very, very confusing. So the interesting thing about this is that many commentators were wondering, and this is basically something that, uh, boy, I had calls from news agencies, reporters, TV stations, the whole nine yards, both, both John Birdsall and myself um, were asked to comment on a lot of these aspects of the case. And it was surprising that many of them had kind of an odd idea about how it works. And really, all you got to do is point somebody to the jury instructions and how they've been laid out. So I can explain it like this. You know, when we're talking about an intentional homicide, and remember, not all the charges are intentional homicide. Some are recklessly um, reckless homicides. Um, and we have lesser included offenses, specifically and particularly as it relates to the first degree intentional homicide, because... There can then be, let's say the jury decides that it wasn't intentional, but it was so reckless and with disregard for human life that it should still be criminal. Well, what they're saying is that reckless homicide is a subset, a, a like a junior version of that first degree intentional homicide. And it can be up to the judge upon the request of the parties, or I suppose I've seen it happen where the judge can just, uh, on his or her own, decide that the evidence fairly raises those lesser-included offenses. So if, if you know what we mean by lesser-included offenses, it means that, you let's just use the first-degree intentional homicide as an example. So the defendant did something that resulted in the death of another, that what he did was with the intent to take the life of another, and that there was basically 
malice aforethought, although that's worded a little bit, just that he had the intent, um, and it can come to one in a second. You know, you've heard this actually in the trial. Intent can be formed in a split second, but as long as it's a clear intent, it can sustain that type of verdict. Well, let's say the evidence presents the question as to whether or not that really is the case. And if that is the case, the jury has the opportunity to say, well, we don't think he intended to kill, but we think that what he did showed utter disregard for human life. Well, what it does is it takes away one of those elements, all right? It takes away the intent to kill element. If you take that away, you're left with a lesser included offense. So I mean, we've seen this in all types of cases. And um, let's say there's a case that involves specific intent, which is which is what that first degree intentional homicide does involve. But I'll use another good example. Um, battery to a law enforcement officer involves, number one, the uh, touching or contact with another person without their consent. Number two, caused some type of harm, including which can include pain, discomfort, etc. And number three, in that scenario, the person was a law enforcement officer. And number four, the person who committed the battery was aware that it was a law enforcement officer. Okay. So that makes it a higher level offense. If the person commits a battery against that law enforcement officer and is, if the prosecution can prove that the defendant knew that it was a law enforcement officer, well, let's say it's an undercover person and they never identify themselves and the prosecution try and say, aha, well, he should have known. I mean, the guy said at some point I'm a cop or whatever. Well, they can't prove that additional element, the one that says defendant knew it was a law enforcement officer. A lesser included offense, offense of that greater offense would be just a simple battery, right? So that's kind of how you have to look at it. There are subsets of other um, laws that have, have been basically mapped out by the jury instructions. And so in this case, um, you know, there were there was the question of how self-defense should play out. And we all know the basic facts. Um, Kyle Rittenhouse, 17 years old, goes to Kenosha under the auspices of protecting property and rendering first aid, brings an AR-15 with him. And we all know what happens as the night goes on. There's, thing, there's tensions boiling. People are protesting, lighting fires, destroying property. And this was not the first night of all that going on. It was going uh, into several days of this type of activity. And so when one is faced with someone attacking them, and it's a reasonable fear that one is going to suffer either loss of life or suffer great bodily harm, one has the absolute right to repel that uh, threat with deadly force. And a lot of people are talking about proportionality. Well, you know, that's not exactly the way the law is worded in our state. We don't use that word. We say that if the person had a reasonable fear of death or great bodily harm, they're entitled to use deadly force. So the question then becomes, is that belief reasonable? At least that's how it's done in our state. I heard one commentator saying that this, the jury should also consider if it was in proportion to the threat being raised. That's not the law in Wisconsin. That's the law in other places. So 
but again, it's kind of tied into that reasonableness standard. Was it reasonable for the person to believe that? Then we add this other layer of it, and this is this whole provocation issue. And let's use a classic scenario where that would clearly apply. If somebody provokes the attack, and you know what they're talking about is what you can imagine in your head to be a common situation where, let's say, I am... I find out that my girlfriend's cheating on me and she's at a bar with her with her new lover and I go to the bar to confront him and I walk up walk in the bar and the first thing I do is I punch him right in the face then he comes after me with a knife and I stand my ground and shoot him down dead um that's the provocation analysis so since I started it since I punched the guy in the face and he came after me when that occurs well what it does is it gives the defense i mean the defendant the accused in that situation the guy who threw the punch the first punch a duty to retreat or attempt retreat and to unequivocally say oh okay i'm i'm cooling this down i'm sorry and and then to completely make an attempt every reasonable attempt to resolve the situation short of violence. Well, one can regain the privilege, as it were, if the situation, if you demonstrate that you've tried to, number one, escape, and number two, disavow any further violence that might occur. And then let's say a dude comes after you anyway with the knife in hand. Well, then you have the right to, uh, if you reasonably fear for your life or great bodily harm defend yourself with deadly force all right so that's all the time we have for this week and hope you tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 whbl this has been legal defense with kirk and john have a great weekend